greenhouse emissions that both countries are emitting from agriculture, and what else have we been doing? And also uh, looking at uh, how agriculture can uh, be an important player in reducing the impact of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And so through webinars and blogs and a lot of interviews we've been doing to folks, we've been seeing that there's a lot of common challenges in both the countries in terms of like how much greenhouse gas emissions. It's Globally, it's 31% of greenhouse gas emissions. And today we're kind of shifting the focus a little bit on another common challenge is that, okay, and so, so, so Karen. I'm going to manage the question, so, so I'll be She's going out. off camera now. So, um, so today we're, we're changing our focus a little bit and that we're looking at a, a common threat, climate threat, that also poses great significance for both U.S. and China in terms of um, glacial loss, threats to water and food. So just to kind of do the more formal intro, but not that formal, because I'm, that's not how I work. So many of you um, might know that snow and glaciers in, in the Hindu Kush Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau, they contain the largest volume of fresh water outside of the Earth's polar ice sheets. So that's why leading scientists, they dubbed that region the third pole. But there's more than one third pole. There's more than yeah. one pole. That's what we're going to get to in a second. <laughs> so, um, so global warming is accelerating glacier melt in, in this region and other poles around the world, not just at the, the two ends, north and south. And so it's threatening water, food security, ecosystems, and the lives of hundreds of millions of people in Asia, specifically in the Tibetan Plateau. But globally, millions and billions of people's lives are being threatened. Um, now, for a mere 40 years, these two people sitting at the table with me, these are, these are you ready for it? I'm going to say it, elite glacial scientists. Um, they're Lonnie and Ellen Thompson from Ohio State University. And um, for 40 years, they've been working with uh, Tan Dao Yao from the Institute of Tibetan Plateau Research. Unfortunately, there was a family emergency that happened, and he wasn't able to make it with us today. But we're going to pull him in for a one-on-one -on -one green tea chat so you can hear more of his story. But these two have been working in China for years, and so we'll be getting the China story as well today. Um, but the research that you've been doing, the three of you with many other scientists, um, have sounded the alarm on the changing climate of what's happening in the glaciers. Um, and I'm going to just kick right in. We're going to ask you questions. We're going to talk. We're mainly here to talk about the science and about the kind of cooperation you've had with China and others, and um, a little bit about what this means for you know maybe food security. But we're just going to start. Um, all right. Oh, I should say a little bit more about who you are. Sorry, the bio thing, because I'm not used to not, not being in my either my study at the Wilson Center here. So. Dr. Lani Thompson is a distinguished university professor in the School of Earth Scientists and a research scientist at the Bird Polar Research Institute. Um, and his research has propelled the field of ice core paleoclimatology. I uh, practice that word at home. It's lovely. Um, but you've been everywhere. Have you been in, have you been in all the poles? Uh, all the, He's well, been, all the poles, uh, meaning either north or south or high elevation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> She's been there. But, um, but equally as swashbuckling is uh, Dr. Mosley Thompson, who's also a distinguished university professor, and she's at the Department of Geography Atmospheric Science Program and also a senior researcher at the Bird Polar Climate Institute and also tromping around mainly in, in uh, Greenland and Antarctica. So you've been you've hung out with with Tandong and, and Lani up in Tibet as well, I'm assuming. OK. <laughs> and what I think and but you also I like that you use the. You do the chemical and physical property research around these these ice cores that you've collected to try to deduct their what's happening. Right. We have. It's important that I point out that the work that Lonnie and I report represents the collective work of our research team, which consists of about ten people. So I'm not in there every day, and neither is Lonnie making the chemical measurements. We have analytical chemists who do that. Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's, 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 it's a team. It's a team, it's a but team, it's, a, it's a village, sure. but it's also a global village. Um, so, but before we go into the partnerships that you've had with Tandong and other people around the world, you've scaled mountains, tromped over ice fields for decades. And I want to see, can you tell us this little story to help us, you know, we haven't done this. What does it mean when, you, you know, you're, you're going, you're glad, gathering ice core samples, how do, how do you know, what, what's the science behind understanding the glacial melt? And maybe we'll start with you, Lonnie, and then we'll go to Ellen and your stories about the science. 
Well, first, first of all, glaciers record climate in two ways. Uh, one is in what's in the ice itself, the history that's in the ice, but they also respond to climate change. So they're indicators. And sometimes I like to think of them as our first responders to climate change. And, uh, they, you know, they all advance uh, if it gets colder and they retreat when it gets warmer. Uh, so they're, they're really documenting real time what's going on in the environment. The other point I would make is when we first started this over 40 years ago, we were not looking at climate change. We were looking at how low latitude glaciers behave compared to the polar glaciers and trying to you know, get that science down. And it was only after going back to many of these glaciers several times that we started to note the changes taking place and then really getting concerned because they were accelerating as we came forward in time. So uh, in uh, in the last few years, our, our work on these high mountain glaciers is more like a salvage mission. Get the records before they get compromised by melting, because unfortunately, we will lose mountain glaciers around the world. And no matter what our future we do, choices we make, we've already made choices that will eliminate these glaciers. So getting those records and preserving them for the future is in a high priority for our group. And, and so, so that's the big picture. What about the, what, can you give us some comments about like, so the, the ice cores, what is it? I mean, that's how you're documenting, but how do you get them? Well, well, the ice sheets or the glaciers build from the snow that falls every year that compacts, and uh, some ice cores go back 800,000 years. Those would be in Antarctica. Some of the ice cores only go back maybe 20, 30,000 years. That's still long, but only. (laughs) And examples of those might be the Huascaron record that I'm sure Lonnie's going to talk about in Peru. But when snow falls, it carries with it constituents or things that are in the atmosphere. And also, some things just fall out on the glacier. So the snow brings not just um, liquid, the water, the frozen water, but it it buries the things that fall out. So constantly being buried. And in many of the course that we have collected, we can actually discern the annual layers in certain constituents. So like the the Calcaya ice cap that I know Lonnie will mention in Peru, uh, you get distinct dust layers that fall, the dust falls in the dry season. So every year you can count back dry season, dry season. Now, why do I stress that? Because if you don't have a time scale for your ice core, you don't have a record. The most challenging thing that we have to do with the ice cores we collect is to establish robust time scales so that we can look at not only what changes we're observing in the climate based upon the various chemicals that are deposited, etc., or we get ash from forest fires, but we have to know where in time those uh, those events occur because we're also interested in what was happening with people. Mm-hmm. An ice core is great and it tells you about the climate, but the, the what's happening with the populations in the region or around the world is equally important. And then, well, how do you get an ice core? Well, it depends <laughs> on where you're drilling. But, okay, give us uh, a story or two. Uh, you know, we've drilled in 16 different countries, and they're all different in the logistics. Uh, if you're working outside of the polar regions, you have to go in and you have to make the contacts, the relationships, uh, make uh, cooperative agreements uh, to get these projects executed. And so if you're in Tibet, uh, you know, um, Drilling an ice core at uh, 22,000 feet in the Himalayas. But you're, when you start up there, you're in the polar regions. I mean, it's very cold, and you can actually use Sherpas and porters to carry these cores. Uh, you know, we have to take a drill up there. And <laughs> so we, we have to take six tons of equipment. 
Is it kind of like big Legos that you have to carry? It is like big Legos, and each piece has to be small enough so an individual can carry it. So your drill has to be lightweight and portable. Uh, we developed the first solar-powered ice core drill to get up to some of these high mountains where you can't carry a generator, but you can assemble a, a solar array. So the uh, uh, getting up there, drilling, drilling can take you know, six weeks. And when we drill, we, we each core comes up about a meter in length, and we have pits that we dig in the snow, uh, and we bury. Uh, everything is stored in the ice till the end of the expedition. Then we have Sherpas and porters that come in. At high elevation, they can actually carry these in a backpack. Because it's cold. <laughs> but if you're in Tibet, you get down to the edge of the ice, you're still 4,000 feet from the plateau where you could bring in a freezer truck. And so they, in each of these countries, you got to use the local whatever's available. <clears throat> and if you're in the Himalayas, they're yaks. <laughs> and these yaks are uh, incredible creatures. I really like them. But they're very independent thinkers. And they... Uh, <laughs> We, we drill 500, 600 meters of core. We can get, uh, 12 meters, two insulated core boxes onto on a yak. So 12 meters. So we have to have a whole herd of yaks. <laughs> and if anyone has a cat, uh, yaks think like cats. They kind of do their own thing. So you have to have a special handler. And we thought undergraduate students are difficult. <laughs> uh, you have to have a special handler who can whistle a song to the axe, and then they, they're calm, and they go in a straight line down to the the, the freezer trucks. And then you got to move across Tibet uh, to Lhasa. And in Lhasa, there's a freezer, and we, in China, every country's different. We have a cooperative agreement. Half of what we drill stays in China, and half comes back to our labs here in the U.S. And once you have divided the core, then you have to air cargo it to Beijing. You got to go through Chinese customs. Then you got to put air cargo it from Beijing to Chicago, go through U.S. customs. This is almost sounds more difficult than the yaks. Uh, and, well, there, there are stories to be told. But, but then you get to Chicago, you have to have freezer trucks that uh, bring the cores down to the freezers here at Ohio State, and that's where we unload them. We put them in storage at minus 30 degrees C. And then you can start. Then that's when the exam that, That's <laughs> when, once you get the core in the freezer, you can say, uh, okay, the field part succeeded. Then you do the examinations. Mm-hmm. And we can actually say that we have the largest collection of ice cores from the low latitudes in the U.S., Wow. And the only collection from Tibet in the Western Hemisphere. And that's because we've been working there for 40 years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Well, hold that thought because I'm going to come back to like why 40 years with Chinese partners. Anything that you want to tell me anything else about where your work in Antarctica in, in getting the cores is, I mean, no yaks, but no. similar stories of, of like, how do you get it uh, out is also. It's that we use exactly the same drills that Lana uses. And so, and this is unique about our group as well, are the lightweight drills that we've developed here at Ohio State. Um, I'm very fortunate because my projects, I get air support. So basically, I'll get put in, my team will get put in and pulled out along with the ice by a twin otter. But that means you have to have a base nearby. So one of the collaborative programs that uh, it was a very interesting collaborative program in 2007 2008 the there was the uh the second geophysical year and that that was uh, a an international team so there were people from different countries we were using like the helico- uh, a ship with a helicopter from Japan mm-hmm. uh we were working out of the British Antarctic Survey base at Rothera and we had scientists from different countries uh, looking at everything about the Antarctic Peninsula. The interesting thing about the Antarctic Peninsula is 
with regard to Antarctica, which is the largest source of frozen water, is the fact that the glaciers in the Antarctic Peninsula are melting, and they're melting quickly. Hmm. All right. So, and but yeah, one thing though, before we before we start, you said that there's. I mean, he talked about this machine, but you said there's also hand. Yes, there are hand augers. Now, that's what they'll be using this summer in Peru. Okay. Um, therefore, you, as Lonnie mentioned, sometimes getting a generator in takes uh, takes more time, mm-hmm. takes some more animals to carry it or Sherpas to carry mm-hmm. them, etc. Um, so hand augers have the special have a special place in what we do, but you're only just tapping the top part of the glacier. Got it. Okay. But, but they're also important because they don't pollute. Mm. If you have a generator, uh, you know, either diesel or diesel, gasoline. Greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, well, yeah. You have soot and all of those things yeah. that come from that. That's yeah. right. Uh, you want to keep the environment pristine as possible. So it's a trade-off, actually, mm. because you can't hand logger. 40 meters no. isn't going to get you the full record. And any time our team goes in to drill... Unless it's a specific project like the one in Peru that I'm sure Lonnie will mention, uh, we always drill as deeply as we can and ideally to the bedrock ice interface. So we get everything that is available. Okay, I was going to ask about Tandong, but she's mentioned Peru twice. What do, what do, I, what do we need to know about Peru, which is well, not the Tibet Plateau, but these are all important for the whole ecosystem. Well, and, and it's amazingly similar place. You know, there are two big plateaus on this planet. Tibet, which is the largest. The second largest is the Alapano in southern Peru and Bolivia. And on top of those, there are glaciers. And and the indigenous people who live in those areas depend on those glaciers and have for thousands of years. And, you know, so, so a lot of the things that there, people are facing in Peru and in the Andes are the same thing. And it's amazing. We take some of our colleagues from Peru, our mountaineers, to China, and you know, Tibetans can't tell the difference between our uh, our Peruvian colleagues. I mean, uh, you know, they all live at high elevation, and uh, so it's a uh, yeah, it's a world, but it's they're all connected. Yeah. And they're all connected, and so Kelkaya is a, a an unusual place. I mean, it's the largest tropical ice cap on Earth that's right above the Amazon basin. And it was the very first ice cap ever drilled outside of the polar regions. And it provided our very first history of climate in the tropics. Oh. And it was beautiful. I mean, if uh, when we were starting, I mean, yeah, no one had looked. And we could have made a better choice of a, our first attempt. Because we now drill all over the world, and this was an exceptional place. And that record was written like a book. You can see every layer, and in the ice core itself, you can count back 1,800 years. And then you can compare that to the rise and fall of cultures in the Andes, the Tiwanaku, the Wari, the Incas, and, uh, and you can see the role that climate played and the rise and fall of those early agrarian cultures in that part of the world. So it was a wonderful place to launch what became a global program. So, uh, yeah, but Tibet, very similar story, and equally important uh, for the indigenous people, as well as all the people who live downstream of those glaciers. I mean, we, and, 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 I mean I'm, for years I know, I remember I was starting, I'm a water person, folks mainland China. And when I, I was struck by the term Tibetan water tower, is how mm-hmm. a lot of people call it. And I don't know if that's really scientific, but it, it really gives you the image of how, I mean, it's, all of, I mean. It's a very good analogy. I mean, yeah. Asian water towers. Asian water towers. And that, and that also that how the, you know, as, as the glaciers melt, I mean, a lot of the places that will initially be impacted are very remote, but eventually, all water stream. eventually goes to the ocean and we're all, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of, of the Yangtze and the Yellow and all these major rivers, the Mekong. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah now, this is a... The Ganges, can't forget that. Into yeah, all no, these, yeah, all yeah, these, all right, these right. rivers. I mean, I mean they are, they're, they're extremely important because there are so many people living along the, 
the banks of these major river systems that are being impacted by the loss of the ice far from you know, most of them don't even know what's going on so but, so hypothetically so if 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 you were a farmer high up in the mountains what 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 are, what are you going to start experiencing or what have you been experiencing now and what's what's coming so the the close to the glacier farmers well first of all they know it's happening i've always thought if we had a glacier here in ohio there would be no discussion about climate change because you would see it and there's something about seeing it with your own eyes that makes if you go to alaska and you talk to people up there no they're going to deniers of climate change. I mean, the glaciers have been retreating and accelerating. And so, so these are visible. And so they're therefore very convincing. Uh, and, and I would say that uh, in our time that we've actually testified before the U.S. Senate, you, you can talk about isotopes, which are a wonderful recorder of temperature in these cores, but they're not going to get it. They get the pictures. Mm-hmm. They get the pictures of the retreat and the melting water. Yeah. And, uh, and and then what you're trying to do is communicate to show how important these changes are. Uh, and they are global. So, yes, uh, I think in 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 Tibet, uh, initially, you know, our work was, can you get can you get an ice core out of Tibet? Yeah. I mean, can you get it through the Gobi Desert? And keep it frozen. I mean, I mean these were the kind of the challenges, the logistics that we were we were facing. Right. And it's only with time we saw the change. I think one of the things that's important to stress is that there are other archives, climate archives, like people will uh, drill re- uh, tree cores, for example, mm-hmm. or they'll drill in lakes, et cetera. But our colleagues over the years have had tremendous issues getting their samples back from China. Mm-hmm. We never had that problem. We were so fortunate to no, have... No, no, sorry, we got, we got to bring Tom Dong in. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, were yeah, so yeah. fortunate to have, you know, Lonnie's brother... His brother. <laughs> ...there um, supporting the the importance of having the analyses done in two labs. Mm-hmm. Because how else can you check the, the, the robustness of the results? And, and also, and, and you know, helping each other more minds. But how, so, so, how did how did you meet your brother Tan Dong Yao? <laughs> well, it uh, uh, it was an interesting time. I mean, it, it was an interesting time to be a scientist, a young scientist here in the U.S. because the U.S. was reaching out to open doors, and you know, China had been closed uh, uh, for years uh, to foreigners, and uh, likewise the Soviet Union. And we were very fortunate to be on the very first expeditions to go into these areas. And it's kind of interesting to go back to that time because um, at the time I uh, for uh, I was working down in Peru and the National Academy of Science actually flew me up to a meeting in Virginia. And we had a one week briefing on how you interact when you go to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you don't ask your Chinese colleagues, your scientists, for certain data. You don't ask for maps. You uh, you don't take pictures of bridges or or cities when you're going through. And uh, the you know the very first expedition was in 1984, and and the purpose was to find an ice cap because before. Uh, the Communist Party took over in the national, uh, in our glaciological journals back in the 1920s. There were German expeditions into Tibet that had seen ice caps off in the distance. But we didn't know where they were. And so that first expedition was to, can you find a glacier where you could get an ice core? And so the first place we went was in the Tian Shan in the far western China. Mm-hmm. Uh, near Urumuchi, and uh, there's glacier number one there that they've studied for for years, which also has a tremendous retreat story uh, mm-hmm. in their Same studies. Pictures, yeah. And the the uh, uh, and it was 
it, it only took a couple of weeks to figure out this was not the place to drill, but it was there that I met Yao Tang Do. He was a graduate student. He was just finishing his PhD in hydrology, looking at water discharge at Ramuchi River. And so we took long walks in the Tian Shan, which are spruce covered mountains, and we talked about the future and what could be done. And uh, uh, you know, his English wasn't that good, and my Chinese certainly wasn't, and but yet we communicate, and uh, and so that's where we started to build this relationship, and it is all about building relationships, and building trust, and that's one of the beauties of a field program, is that um, if you're working at high elevation, it is cold, it is windy. Usually you're at the end of the food chain uh, because you may have camps below, but a lot of stuff gets consumed before it gets up there, and there's not much oxygen. And so if you can operate in those conditions and you can accomplish a mission, then it gives me great hope for the future that we can work together to uh have great accomplishments, but it, it it really does require a trust, mm-hmm. and it takes time to build trust. And so, but that was our very first introduction. And in that same trip, we did find an ice cap, the Dunda ice cap, in the Chilianshan Mountains in eastern part of Tibet. That was an ice cap, yes. and that became our very <laughs> first drilling project uh, in Tibet. So, uh, but at that time, I mean, China was a totally different place. I mean, in Beijing, there were probably two million people. Yep. They were all on bicycles. Yep. And very few cars. Logistics were real challenge. I actually was thinking that I lived in China starting in 1987. I was just thinking of the logistical challenges you must have had, but, but you made it work. We worked together to make it work. Right. And this is where having those international relations and having people who share a passion for what you're doing that allows that accomplishment to take place. It's not that we didn't have lots of challenges, but we overcame them by working together. And, and so over time that you've continued working with Tandong, on, and, and there's a sense you've built these um, third pole environment centers. So one is here, one's in One's in Beijing and a couple more around the world. What what are the you, so you've built a, a global network? You and yeah. you 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 well, you you two with Tandong. Well, it, you know there there's a history. Yeah. I haven't and, and you know, we've always believed in a win win. You know uh, this is about first of all it was always about science, and that's been our focus. You know understand what's going on in this part of the world. What can the glaciers tell us? And uh, they, you know, and Yao, you know, he came to uh, Ohio State, I think, 1988, 89, uh, as a postdoc. Nice. And he came back probably three times. And uh, he's and, an honorary Midwesterner. Uh, he is, and and he he also at the same time was working his way through to become uh, you know, vice uh, chair of Lancho Institute of Glaciology and Geocryology in Lancho, China. And then he uh, got uh, atmospheric sciences, a whole group together to make a large institute that he became director of. And then it was in, it was in 2002 that I had an invitation to come to China to meet with Yao and the Minister of Science and Technology. And that's where we first discussed establishing the Institute of Tibetan Plateau Research because there were so many different people and countries working on different issues in Tibet that we needed something that would bring them together. So this, you get a, uh, a compilation of information of different studies in that area. And, and what has always amazed me in China is that if you have a good idea and you can make a good presentation, it will happen and it'll happen quickly. Mm-hmm. 
So within a year, he had funding to build this institute. And now he has a campus in Beijing and a campus in Lhasa. Nice. And uh, and then as uh, time progressed, uh, we uh, we came up with this idea of the third pole environment program. Uh, and uh, this program was designed to bring together scientists in, and trained scientists mm-hmm. in 14 different countries in that area because the quality of science had a huge variability from one country to another. And, of course, there was not a lot of communication going on between some of these countries. Mm-hmm. And in those early days, we set up workshops. And we'd have those workshops in different countries. And it was you with, with Tandong. Uh, and, and, and Ellen. And, and Ellen. And we had a, a, a team, uh, a Volker Moosberger from Germany mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, Chin from yeah. Sweden. And we, uh, we put together this, uh, this program to bring together studies of air, water, uh, atmosphere, uh, ecology, and humankind, uh, and how changes were impacting those systems. Mm-hmm. And so you need modelers, you need a whole group of people. So I think we have now in the TPE program about 400 mm-hmm. uh, people. and Across the globe. Across the globe. And, and it's amazing how things happen. I mean, it didn't exist. Uh, we uh, met, uh, Yao Tengong came to Chicago. I went to Chicago and Boker Moosberger came from Germany. We sat down, we laid out a science plan. Yao took it back, uh, presented it to the Minister of Science and Technology, and we had our third pole environment program. Nice. nice. And the first meetings or workshops, the people had a hard time communicating and the quality of the science was really, really low. Mm. But we'd have meetings in India and at that time, it was very difficult for Chinese to get a, a visa to go to India. Oh, yeah, sure. And we'd have them in China, and it was very difficult for the Indians <laughs> to get visas to get into China. But the whole idea was to get communication going in science. Mm. And we have been amazed at how well that has worked. And we have to kind of flag for people, particularly the Gen Zers maybe listening today, a lot of this was happening before there was an internet and email, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, you want to go back. keep that in mind. You want to go back to those early days. I mean, you're making a phone call to China was a major ordeal. Yeah, yeah. Because inevitably you end up with a Chinese operator and you're trying to communicate what you want and who do you yeah, want. Yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, you know, it's, it's not an easy process. Mm-hmm. And that's where persistence and mm-hmm. having committed people uh, are so important. And you guys totally committed to this. And the training yeah. that the students got by going, spending time at the different centers. How many centers are there now? We, we, Beijing. We have one in Nepal. Frankfurt. We have uh, the one here at Ohio State. Uh, we have one in Frankfurt, Germany. We have one in Sweden. And we're hoping to open one uh when things settle down in Peru, uh, yeah. down in Lima, Peru, which would be the first one in the southern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. The one we opened in 2016 here at Ohio State was the first one in the western hemisphere. And the, the idea is that all these groups are working on various research programs, some of them lakes, some of them caves, uh, uh, and um, some of them modeling climate uh, and trying to understand what the future changes are going to be, mm-hmm. uh, but all with a common interest in the third pole. Yep. And yeah. exchanging students. Mm-hmm. We often say, you know, you've got different scholars, mm-hmm. even here at Ohio State, scholars who could collaborate, but they're busy, et cetera, but their graduate students and their postdocs are the glue that mm-hmm. make this happen. And that was the exchange of the students and the postdocs among these centers has tremendously elevated the quality of the science. I was wondering, so you've done a lot of work in in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And do 
do you bring students with you there as well to I help have. in the training? Oh, so, yes. And, yes, and, even and, undergraduate students. Nice, nice. Years ago. And um, but so how does it? It's, I mean, it's. I mean, you. There have been some Chinese collaborators also in Antarctica. But can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about some some of your experiences in this kind of, you know, the village coming together to do the climate yeah. research in Antarctica? Yeah. Well, Antarctica is unique because it operates under the Antarctic Treaty, and so although there are some claims of specific sectors of Antarctica, nobody really pays attention to that, and people work together. Uh, on many different projects. And so my first project when I was, um, just, had just graduated with my PhD, uh, was at South Pole Station in Antarctica. And mm-hmm. I was basically working with, uh, colleagues from the U.S., like from the University of Washington, one of my colleagues, but also with the, uh, with the Swiss, three Swiss colleagues. Mm-hmm. And there, I took a, a postdoc and a graduate student with me that constituted the three-person Ohio State team. And then there was the three-person Swiss team. And then there was a three-person ice core drilling team, actually mostly from Nebraska. Okay. And, and then more recently, as part of the um, international, the second international geophysical year focusing on Antarctica, uh, we had Japanese, used a Japanese ship, and it had a helicopter that could bring people up to our drill camp, which was up on the spine of the Antarctic Peninsula, a place called, uh, well, it was just above, people have probably heard of the Larsen Ice Shelf mm-hmm. that's been breaking up. It's just up on the mountain, it's an ice field, that where the ice flows into the Larsen Ice Sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's called a Bruce Plateau. It won't mean anything to no. anyone. But we're not the ones height climbing mountains, but you but, are. Okay. But most people are aware of the Larsen Ice Larson. Shelf that sheds these massive icebergs. But yeah, and so we were working there with people who were collecting sediment cores using the drill on the ship. People who were taking rock samples to measure things that are going to give ages to the to the exposure of the Antarctic uh, when it was last uh, covered by ice and now mm-hmm. it's exposed. All kinds of things. It was very exciting. And what's fun is later bringing your records together and then publishing and, the and Have there been Chinese scientists that have worked with you down there as well? N- n- well, no. Not yet? Not, no. not as collaborators. The Chinese have their bases, and but they have collaborated with other U.S. scientists. Okay, so, okay good. Yes. So, so there's, there's, there's full collaboration. One thing that I will say about Antarctica that's so unique is the conditions are very harsh. It's very difficult for to get from like a major station to where you're going to have your project. Bad things happen down there. And if anything happens, everybody pitches in mm-hmm. their logistics to solve that problem. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, very, it's very heartwarming that this kind of the level of collaboration. It's the only way it works. Yes. Yeah. And just because, you know, my project is, um, you know, a lot on, you know, U.S.-China work, on, you know, and, and I have found over the years that there's been collaboration, you know, in the ups and downs of the relationship has continued in many areas. Well, how is it? How about? In your area of work, has, has, you know, the tensions, you know, that they come, they're high right now, but is it, you guys just keep doing your work? We, we do, uh, as, that doesn't mean that there's not issues that we face from our government and our policies, and that Yao doesn't face similar issues with his government, and, and it's a matter of, We've always tried to keep the science above the politics, uh, and as much as you can. But we do live in a world that, uh, where, you know, you have to be permitted to go. Yeah, yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, I would say that it's gotten more difficult, uh, getting into some parts of Tibet mm-hmm. for many reasons. Uh, and so, yeah, we find ways uh and then of course the pandemic didn't help any international 
Uh, and we're just now starting to spin up our TPE program again. We have now our very first post-TPE symposium nice. that will be held in November this in year. In person? In person. Awesome. <laughs> in Chongqing, China. And oh, this Chongqing, great city. Good was, food. Well, and it's the one last year, the Yangtze River dried up. Exactly. Right. And last week, uh, huge floods. 15 people died in, from the floodwaters in that town. So they're seeing the extremes in climate and seeing how it's impacting their way of life, which it is for all of us. And, and, and here in the U.S., just briefly, um, glacial melt, how, anything you can share about how that is impacting us? Because, you know, I mean, people like, let's say the people out on the East Coast, we don't know what's happening out here in the glacial melt, because glacial melt feeds agriculture in the Western United States. In, in, the, in the Northwest, uh, you know, for Oregon, Washington, Idaho, potatoes, you, you know, there's, that's a big. Now you've hit it our heart. Uh, yeah, that's a big industry. But that comes back to the snowpack mm-hmm. and the availability of precipitation during the cold part of the year when you can build a big snowpack or not. Yeah. And that's a tremendous impact on, um, well, lots of things, including just the flow in, like the Colorado River. Mm-hmm. that millions of people depend upon. But then you've got all the farmers with uh, water-thirsty crops. Actually, I'll get on my little bandwagon. Growing crops where they shouldn't be grown, <laughs> like cotton, <laughs> almonds, things that... It happens consume. in China and other countries, too. It happens everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. These, these thirsty crops in places that are, right. that are under threat. Yes. And so... And it's common between the two countries. And it's also true, also true for Alaska. Yeah. I mean, Alaska has lots of glaciers, uh, hydroelectric power, um, depends on the steady water supplies and the rivers. And, you know, with droughts and uh, especially during uh, times of drought, if you're in Tibet or South America where you have a wet and dry season, uh, you have to have water in the dry season, other your power production drops. So, there's so many ways that you're connected uh, to the glaciers. But I know in, in Alaska, you know, they have a fishing industry, about a billion dollars a year, and salmon and things like that. They depend on water and those rivers to do their thing. So so it's all uh, connected. I think Karen is. Yeah, so we some questions are coming in, so I wanted to get some. And I apologize if I mispronounce people's names. So this is from uh, Jade uh, Lisquiak, uh, writing in from Beijing. And uh, how has the changing U.S.-PRC relations affected scientific collaborations in the past years, especially as it pertains to the third poll? Yeah, well, I, I think that uh, any time countries are not getting along for various various reasons, uh, it's going to it's going to have a a negative impact on our abilities to work together and exchange ideas freely. And, and so, to me, this is uh, this is something that uh, I think scientists and this is not new. No, I mean you, you can go back to uh, uh, you know a lot of uh, you know, two hundred years, three hundred years ago, Alexander von Humboldt uh, having science discussions with where there's standing armies fighting each other and yet the scientists are still communicating somehow about that. Mm-hmm. So so this has been a challenge uh, just because the nature of humanity, there's always conflict somewhere and and we have to find a way to rise above that. It, it may that. affect the field work. That will be the most affected yeah. will be the field work. But, to, but with electronic communication now, we can continue to uh, have discussions, publish papers together. Mm-hmm. We even had one, we had one of the uh, postdocs from Beijing was trapped with us for almost three years <laughs> oh, <okay>. during COVID. <laughs> a COVID he captured, came yeah. for a one-year postdoc. Then he was going on to Europe for his next postdoc, and COVID happened. And he had to spend had to spend three years with us. Tremendously productive. Oh yeah, he couldn't go home. He and couldn't you guys go forth. Keeping him here too, so that well, was awesome. Yeah. Yes. But we had lots of papers, and he's still, you know, he's now a professor in Lancho University, mm-hmm. 
as a whole career, you know, that's kind of our job. And I mean, he's part of the family and he's totally going to stay connected with Ohio State University. I'm this sure. is how you build long-term exactly. relations. He'll be sending students here. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Karen, you have another okay, question. So we have uh, two kind of related questions. One came in from Isabel Felton and it's on uh, kind of related to weather and that, you know, glaciers have a tremendous impact on weather. So uh, wondering, she's wondering, uh, update us on what we know at present about the effects of the loss of the Tibetan cryosphere on the behavior of the Asian monsoons. And then a related question from Jim uh, Winkler is, how is glacier loss affecting Tibetan agriculture? Well, you're the you're the monsoon man. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you. Does he have you, a tattoo that says that? I'll get him one. Uh, well, in 2022, uh, we had a paper in Nature Reviews, Earth and the Environment, and uh, 22 authors, which summarized what's going on in Tibet. And it's very interesting that if you look at the Himalayas and southern Tibet, where the monsoons are very active. That region is drying, the glaciers are retreating very rapidly, and the lakes are draining. Mm -hmm. But if you go to the north, uh, from central to northern Tibet, where the westerlies are bringing in moisture, there's actually an increase in moisture in that area, and the lakes are rising in in those areas for two reasons. uh, Glaciers are Retreating there also, but at a slower pace because we're getting more snowfall. But the lakes are rising, and that's not good either because you have the Tibetans and the Yaks and their pastures around those lakes, mm. and now they're getting flooded. And and so any time you change the environment, people have to adjust to those those changes. So it's Tibet is a complex place when it comes to climate and, and uh, weather, and you need to understand how those different areas are behaving and how they behave through time. And the fact that the glaciers are now surging, in other words, they're collapsing. I'm thinking of the Aru Glacier, for yeah. example. Now, th- this, is, this is something that's very unusual. Uh, glaciers, you know, you, you think of them there. They're like kind of like bureaucracy. They move very slowly, uh, but not so anymore. And, and there were two in central Tibet, in the Aru mountain range, in 2016. We had one glacier collapse. I mean, it moved six kilometers out across the plain, killed nine Tibetan herders in a matter of minutes. and no. hundreds of yaks and sheep. And as a result of that, the government moved people out of that plane. I mean, beautiful pasture. Uh, two months later, another one collapsed, even bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yao invited me over the year after, and we went out there to look at these places. They're, I mean, they're amazing that the glacier could move in six minutes, Whoa. those distances. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of different factors that uh, figure into that, but we know from satellite images that there was an unusually warm period with melting taking place, water actually on top of some of these glaciers. Uh, the, uh, and these glaciers in the past have been frozen to their bed. And when a glacier is frozen to the bed, it can have a much steeper slope and be stable. But they're transitioning into what we call temperate glaciers, polythermal, zero degrees all the way through, water going down to the base, lubricating them, and they can collapse. So this is a big uh, concern and trying to be able to predict those to to protect the people who uh, live downstream, not only in Tibet, but in the Andes, where there are cities in the valleys below. So, so your science is <clears throat> another real world. This is not esoteric science that you're doing. That's that right. governments can use your information to to plan in terms of climate adaptation, but also thinking. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a China person. I mean, food security is utmost priority there, and that this is this is a threat as it is here. That to, and but the, and the changes seem to be happening quite rapidly. So, 
how are they, you know, so they need to come up with ways of adapting because we can't, barring completely stopping greenhouse gas emissions like 10 years ago, yeah. um, this is going to continue. This is going to continue. And we, they so have, is this a doomsday type no, no, situation? No, no, no. Uh, there, there are other things going on. Tibet, because it's high elevation, it, temperatures are rising twice as fast there as they are for globally. It's about 0.48 degrees C per decade. Uh, and of course the glaciers, that's where they are and they're responding to it. And, uh, but the Tibet is actually getting greener hmm. because all this water going into the lakes. And, uh, so there's a greening taking place, uh, of Tibet. And so, uh, you know, you have these different issues, but one of the problems with glaciers is that when you melt them, you're melting a history of accumulated ice. And when you, and, and when you do it, you get tremendous water discharge while you're tapping, but it's like a bank account. If all you do <laughs> is take it out, it's going to collapse. And pretty soon you we, you reach peak water flow, and then it just drops. Which and, and you talk about the Indus River. Yep. Forty percent of the meltwater in the dry season comes from melting glaciers. All the glaciers are retreating. It's a bank account. It's being tapped. Provides a lot of hydro irrigation mm-hmm. for food crops. Uh, you know, not only in China but Pakistan and and India. And those, and you, if you're a human being, you kind of come to get used to that, that that water is going to be there. And we know it's, it's not. And so being able to predict when it's a peak water flow going to occur. And so people can adapt. Having early warning systems in some of these valleys where you have outburst floods right. and the like, so that people downstream can get out of the way. Before the water comes. But that's going to entail that that demands international cooperation because you have to think some of this is there's on the ground sensors, there's satellites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as I say, this is not just Tibet, it's South America. It's anywhere there's mountains and glaciers, mm-hmm. this becomes a risk. Karen so, has another so, question. So here's a really uh, related question to this discussion. Uh, once again, pr- uh, pronunciation of the name Alejandro D. Uh, wanted to know about. Um, Looking ahead of uh, our new climate equilibrium, and says, do you have an estimate of the expected water yield of glaciers once a new climate equilibrium is reached? Uh, has that even been thought about yet? I would say that we don't know when there will be a new climate equilibrium. My guess is it's not going to happen for a very long time because one of the things that people tend to forget is that the CO2 we're putting in the end methane, but primarily CO2 that we're putting in the atmosphere now is going to be with us for a long time. So if I emit a certain amount of CO2 just right this minute, about um, 30% of it will still be in the atmosphere 100 years from now. And um, it'll be even less, maybe 20%, but that's going to be even longer. So, in my opinion, let me go back and add an adjective. In my educated opinion, mm-hmm. based upon the science, equilibrium is not in our future at the moment. Uh, and for these glaciers, uh, yeah, they go, they, most of them are going to disappear. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's their, that's their yeah. projection. And if, uh, the question is, in the period you have, can you make changes and adapt? I mean, you, you think about a glacier. In some ways, it's it's a dam. It collects precipitation in the form of snow during the wet season, discharges it in the dry season. Uh, you can, if you have resources, build dams to collect the water mm-hmm. and do what the glaciers are doing for free. Uh, and uh, and but unfortunately, many parts of the world. That's not an option. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of these places, the Himalayas, the Andes, big earthquake areas. So when you build a dam, you're building a risk uh, for the communities. Well, so, so it's, uh, it's, it's it's truly it's a disaster ripple effect going down the river. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, yeah, but we have to think about adaptation uh, to these changes because we do have some time. We have some time, and we've got we've got scientists like you guys, and again, grateful for what you're doing. And can, I want to ask Ellen a special question. In 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 your field, are there a lot of women doing this kind of work? Well, the wonderful part is. When I started, the answer was no, there were very few. The wonderful part is now they're very, they're much more present mm-hmm. in science. Now, working in Antarctica and in Greenland, many more women. Mm-hmm. They're not up 50% yet, but there are, and they do very well. I want to put a plug in for how <laughs> well, actually, I think women adapt probably more easily to to the cold than men. I don't know why, but it's something that I have. <laughs> making a face here. <laughs> that's something that I have observed is yeah. the women that I have worked with in the field are real. Are they're just as tough as the men, but they don't seem to suffer the cold as much. And I do not know. I, some some depends uh, on if they're on vegetarian or not. <laughs> well, that, that that's a factor. Uh, Lonnie had experience with some vegetate vegetate. Vegetarians on his Alaska project, and they did not do well. When I was in Antarctica at a place called Plateau Remote, it's the most remote site from the ocean in any direction. So it's called the Pole of Inaccessibility. Mm. Minus 40 is C, which is the same as Fahrenheit, minus 40, was our average temperature. We were eating 5,000 calories a day and losing weight. Ooh. Okay, so well, and sometimes I'm kind of glad we, we we came back to that issue too. That that the the stresses and the challenges have been great, but I mean, just to emphasize that you know today, you know, we were talking about U.S. and China, and it seems that closes out here on like your you know with Yao and the kind of cooperation. I mean, how do you see things moving forward with with your work with your Chinese colleagues? It's still going strong, it seems. It's going strong. Uh, you're could, still having. We're going to have a workshop. We're going to have a workshop. We're, we're but, you know, it, it's more challenging uh, for both of us. I mean, you know, we do a lot of different things besides climate on these cohorts. We look at microbes, mm-hmm. bacteria, viruses. And we had a, our first major paper in microbiome last year. And, you know, these Chinese authorities went to Yao's lab wanting to know how we had ice cores went to bed. They don't know and, the history. And they don't know the history. And so we all had to go through and show all oh, the agreements yeah. that the government had signed for this exchange. And, you know, it worked out. But, you know, uh, it's, as I say, it's on both sides mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, yeah, we have to be able to respond when, when we're questioned yeah. <laughs> and, you know, how, what, you know, how we got to where we are. Yeah. But it's a long history of over four decades of collaboration. And and are, do you think in the near future do you think there's there, there'll be more like like U.S. and other international students and you know postdocs going to China and coming to you? Know, is there going to be this exchange coming? Is it coming back? I'm, I'm not talking about COVID. Post COVID. Uh, well, I I know I, we have uh, at least three of our postdocs uh, and um, students going to the meeting in Chongqing, China. Right. So. Uh, yeah, this exchange, and we're looking to, you know, increase the exchange between the TP office in Germany, in Sweden, and Nepal. I, I just noticed this morning mm-hmm. I have a student applying from Nepal. Nice. Uh, so. Well, we uh, yeah. have a Chinese student from Yao's group who, if she gets her visa, yeah. she gets her visa, she'll be joining us. But this is the other issue of, you know, whatever the national policies are, is that Mm -hmm. last year we had, uh, for the very first time, one of the applicants did not get their visa to come, the PhD student. And, you know, this exchange is important in so many ways. You were talking about women in science. We had our very first Tibetan Mm -hmm woman, Ph.D. student, Durji, who got her Ph.D., graduated, and Yao and I, we, we co-advised her, and she now has a position in Lan, uh, Lhasa. Lhasa. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean. So you, she's leading the charge there. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if the women see other women who are succeeding and doing well and in leadership positions, then they'll say, I can do that. Yeah. Okay. We, we've hit our time. <laughs> and I was like, I could be here all day, but we want to be, but I mean, you guys are an inspiration. It's encouraging that on both on the science and in some ways science diplomacy that you're just naturally doing for the goal of trying to understand these complex problems and, you know, a lot with China, but broadly. And I, you know, I want to thank you for this work that you're doing. And we, I am going to get Yao to do a one-on-one with me. Please or do. We'll try to get, or we'll get you guys together again because he clearly has got stories. Um, I want to thank Ohio State University and Karen for making this happen and also our Environmental Change and Security Program and Polar Institute at the Wilson Center. They were co-sponsors today. So thank you everyone for tuning in and really. Thank you for joining us today. It was a great, I, I love talking to you guys. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, you like. Okay. Bye-bye.